beat him. Love the end of that. Uh, can you flash that last verse back up real quick before I tell them where we're headed? Uh, one right before that. Uh, maybe before that. No, no, it was the last one. You're right. My bad. Keep going. Right there, the endless mercy tree. Just thought about this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And you know what Lamentation says? They are new every morning. They are new every morning, and we're going to need them this morning because we're talking on conflict. But before we do that, I am going to show you where we're headed. Um, where we're headed over the next few weeks is this. Uh, today, we're going to do the Song of Solomon. We're going to, it's the biggest section of the book. Um, I had originally broke it into two sections, but I'm combining it. Um, just felt led of the Lord to put it all together in one section. Uh, so we'll do that today. Next week, we'll finish the Song of Solomon. And then we'll start an Easter series at the beginning of March. And I'm going to call it The Week That Changed the World. Eight weeks. We're going to look from Sunday to Sunday. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Eight weeks on, we're going to do one day per week. And we're going to look at the week, so really the eight days that changed the world. And then right after that, I thought of no better series to begin right after Easter than the book of Acts. And we're going to go through the book of Acts for however long it takes us to get through the book of Acts. Maybe six years, so come ready to learn. No, I'm kidding. We'll probably get it done by the end of the year. Well, let me pray and we'll get started. Father, this is your word. It's absolutely true. It is without error, and it comforts us, it convicts us, it compels us to live for your glory and to bring good to the world. I pray for every marriage here today that we would all walk away from here strengthened. Lord, I pray for those in our congregation who are traveling. I uh, pray that you would keep them safe. I pray wherever they uh, land that they would enjoy their week apart uh, from us, but with family. I pray that they would enjoy the time together that they would be rested, refreshed, and brought back to us safely. I pray for those in our congregation today. I know of a few who are sick, and I pray, Lord, that you would just heal them, that you would bring that healing that their bodies need so that they may be back with us. I pray now as we open your word to the Song of Solomon in chapter 5, you would guard my words, you would help me speak the truth, speak it in love, speak it clearly, and sometimes speak it mysteriously. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do I want to speak it mysteriously? Because we have young ones among us, and we do not want to scare them away. All right? Song of Solomon. We called it Sex and Romance to the Glory of God. The next slide, we're taking a book each week and showing you good books that are also the, the themes of every sermon. And so the very first week, we just looked at one verse, and we really just gave a history of of what is uh, the word, when we hear the word sex, it's often repeated in sitcoms, it's on the radio, it's in songs. Uh, amazing how much it's in songs. Uh, what does it mean and, and how should we approach it as Christians? And so that first series, Sex and Romance to the Glory of God by C.J. Mahaney, is a great book, uh, Sex and Romance to the Glory of God. And that's really what we've titled this series. The second week we were here, we looked at the book of romance. And uh, we just kind of overviewed the book and said, this is where we're going. Uh, it's by Tom Nelson. That is the pastor that actually trained me. There are some CDs floating around. And today, I'll just be honest with you. 
today, I am, uh, you know, sometimes you just borrow from, borrow one from your old pastor. I mean, someday somebody may say that about me. I don't know. You know, I'm just going to preach one of Judd's sermons. But I'm just going to give you what I learned from him this week because he says it better than I can. Um, and so his is the book of romance. And then we entered into the book with um, intimacy ignited that you jump right into uh, these two married couple in a love scene. And so we looked at intimacy ignited. The week after that, we looked at sacred marriage. Uh, and we wanted to show you that sacred marriages are strong and secure. She had a bad dream. And that bad dream was a literary device to show you that she was seeking security. Today, you're going to see a bad dream that shows her her sinfulness. And so that was that week. And then last week, we looked at this momentary marriage. The central portion of the book of Song of Solomon is a marriage. Uh, That is what it's centered on. And we showed you that marriage is, is one of covenant love. And marriage is, in a sense, a theme of the Bible that the first teaching in Genesis was marriage. Jesus called himself the bridegroom in the church, the bride, a marriage, and it will end with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And today, we've moved from attraction, we've moved from courtship, we've moved uh, to marriage, we've moved to the marriage bed, and today we're going to look at when sinners say, I do. And I, th- I could think of a no better title for this, this sermon, when sinners say, I do. And it's looking at the gospel and marriage because today we're going to look at some conflict. And so what I thought I'd do is uh, just have anybody show of hands just want to come up and share with us conflict that you've had uh, even today. Uh, just share with us openly. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask you to do that. Right? We prayed for this this morning because we, we maybe there was conflict on the way here and it's always a sticky issue when you get into conflict because everybody handles it differently. Um, a book says it like this. The Bible has a shocking, a way of shocking us. If Americans could still blush, we might blush at the words, rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. That's Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. But of course, and here's why we chose that title, Sin always tries to trash God's gifts. So we can't just celebrate sex for what God has made it to be. We have to fight uh, what sin is it turned it into. And that can happen in marriages. We can get into arguments, conflicts. I I don't even like using the word fight, um, but some do. More on that in a minute. And so what you're going to see today, it's a big section of Scripture. So I wanted to show you kind of the breakdown. Uh, The honeymoon is over. And, right, you're going to learn today in peacemaking principles, you never use the words if, but, or maybe. Like, I know I sinned against you, but, you know, that just kind of cancels out everything. And so the honeymoon is over and it's revived. And so you're going to see disagreement in marriage and you're going to see this deepening of marriage. And we don't have our uh, bulletins today, but I would want you to take notes because we've got a few principles, about five on conflict and gentlemen, you've got about five on how to deepen your marriage. And women, I give you four on how to deepen your marriage. We're going to begin in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. There's two ways that people look at this. This is either a dream or it's near sleep and she's awakened. Uh, I'm not in the business of dream analysis, so I'm just going to go with what she plainly said. I slept. I believe this is a dream, 
But I believe in her dream, a lot is going on in her heart. The end of verse 2, it says, A sound, my beloved is knocking. And I'll tell you why I think it's a dream here in about three verses. My beloved is knocking. Now here comes the man. And he says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks will, with the drops of the night. This man is coming, and he's not coming to talk about the finances. He's not coming to talk about uh, um, what they're thinking through, where they're going on vacation next year. He's got one thing on his mind. And so in her dream, this man approaches. He's coming with tender intimacy, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. All these words he's heaping on her. The idea is that he's coming, in those days, uh, men and women would sleep in separate chambers, and so he's approaching his wife, and here's her reaction. I, I put off my garment. How can I put it on? I bathe my feet. How can I soil them? She hesitates. He's excited. She makes excuses. Notice the word here, my garment, my feet. And selfishness is what drives her delay. Now look at four. My beloved put his hands to the latch. He was persistent. He wasn't, in, he wasn't uh, trying to get, break in. He was just making sure, now is this really locked? And then her heart's thrilled within her. Initially she hesitates, but then she's thrilled. Her, his persistence changes her hearts. And she arises. She opens to his beloved. I open to my beloved. My hands drip with myrrh. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. She heads to the door. She's starting to think about intimacy. Verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called to him, but he gave no answer. To her surprise, the man had left. The net Bible says, I fell into despair because he had departed. She was crushed. But notice it says, I sought him. She didn't feel self-pity. She seeks to make the situation right. Look at verse 7. This is why I think it's a dream. The watchmen found me, and as they went about the city, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. The reason I think it's a dream is the watchmen would know who the queen was. She would know. They would know not to touch her and beat her. That's why I think it's a dream. I think she's dreaming this, but the Lord is using her dreams to show her her own selfishness. The language that the, this is right here is of the men sending home a woman of the night. And so as prostitutes were rebuked for doing what is wrong, I think it's best interpreted this woman in her dream realizes by the power of the Holy Spirit is convicted for this rejection of her husband. And so she's being judged for her non-responsiveness, more specifically for her selfishness. And she says then, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved that you tell him I am sick with love. She calls, this is a beautiful picture, she calls the women around her to help her out here. The idea behind this is she's not trying to go about this alone. She was sick with love in his presence in verse uh, 2, 5, and in his absence, she's sick with love. And so here's a good point. All marriages are going to have conflict, but true love never fades. All marriages will have conflict. It says it in 1 Corinthians. Um, it's not a sin if you get married, but if in, when you get married, you will have trouble. It's because when two sinners say, I do, you bring in baggage, no matter how light. And notice this, instead of hiding her sin, she lets others know. Up to this point, she's been holding the daughters of Jerusalem accountable. 
I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love before it's time. But here, she submits themselves to their accountability. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a conflict in the relationship. There's a disagreement. My wife is here. We've been married 14 years, and it's been bliss ever since. I mean, we haven't argued one time. You laugh because you know that would be a lie. You laugh. And you know what's funny? You know, Tom Nelson never had to do this. I'm preaching Song of Solomon, and my mother's here. And we get to talk about sex today. That's a big one. But first, we've got to move through this whole fighting issue. Uh, I asked my wife, I said, let's, you know, let's be open and, and authentic here. Let's just, you know, what, what, what is a conflict? And, and we thought through a conflict. Here, here's the beautiful thing, and here's the funny thing. We thought through a conflict we had about six weeks ago, and it was tense. There was no yelling. We don't, when we got married, we said, we're not going to fight. We have our disagreements, but we don't like that word fight. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But it was so tense uh, it, it, took us, it took us a day to think it through. But here's the thing, we can't even remember what it was about. And that's not, not to say, oh, look at us. Like, but it's, the, the point is, well, we can't even remember what it was about. Was it even worth getting that upset in the first place? Because I'm afraid many people have been brought up on bad theology that if you're not, you're not really relating unless you've had a good fight. That's just unbiblical. That's just unbiblical. You don't have to go there. But let me read to you James 4. Why do, why do fights happen? Why was there this disagreement between this woman and this man? Why is there disagreements with myself and my wife? Why, are you, why do you have disagreements? James 4.1 tells us, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your pleasures wage war within you? That each person comes with what they want. And so really, at the heart, the core of all fights is selfishness. And the reason why I don't even like to use the word fight, if you look it up, it means to attempt to harm or gain power with blows or weapons. The second definition to engage in a quarrel, that's probably what James means there, to contend physically for battle. And so I would say let's not call it fight. Let's not fight with our spouse. Let's fight for our marriage because there is a a real evil person named Satan who prowls around that wants to destroy us. We're on the same team. We've got to learn to disagree and be healthy in our disagreements. I put out on the front table, and it's a great one. Uh, what are we fighting about? Com- guidance for confu- confused couples. And he basically says, let's ask two questions in healthy conflict. What is the nature of our disagreement? The reason? Why are we even, why are we even fighting? And then this is a great one. How significant is our disagreement? What's the importance of it? And he goes through to walks you through to think through the facts, the values, your definitions. Uh, because I, I think back to the times when Ashley and I have had disagreements, we're, we're either missing each other and we're not even, we're talking about two separate issues or we're talking about the facts, but we're just interpreting them differently. So we need to get on the same page and we often say, hey, we're on the same team. We're working together here. And so this woman has this dream and in this dream, again, she calls on the others and, and the others respond to her. In verse 9, what is your beloved more than any other beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? And so there's kind of this mocking going on. Uh, not the way you want to begin your accountability, by the way. Why is your man so special? This is not the best response to give an accountability, but watch her response. She doesn't defend herself. She just gives a reason why they 
should go looking for this man. And she responds with grace and dignity, speaking well of her man. There's another point you could talk about. Spouses, do not, in the presence of another, speak negatively about your spouse. That can tear someone down. And she says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. He is one of a kind. His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as a raven, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs, his lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels, his body is carved or polished ivory. He does sit-ups. Bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. He is strong. His appearance is like Lebanon. Choice is the cedars. His mouth is sweet, and she summarizes it. He is altogether desirable. She moves from his head to his feet, much like he did in an earlier section. She likes his hair. And just like last week, ladies, I said... She, it was descriptive, not prescriptive. When Solomon likes her teeth, and you'll see that again today, that, that, that doesn't need, mean you have to go get dental work. And gentlemen, isn't it great that this is descriptive? She likes her hair. For me, she likes my head. Right? She has to. Well, I told her. I, we were in, I remember in seminary, I, I had a professor named Dr. Jay Smith. And he was my Greek professor, and he had the the short hair look. And I said, sweetie, as soon as I start to get that that receding hairline and we're thinning, I'm shaving. We're not going to fight it. Uh, We're not doing the comb over. We're not doing any of that. I'm shaving it off. And she goes, she kind of looked at me. And then when I did it, it actually happened here right before we went on vacation once. You gave me the first cut. And uh, I figured you would know what you were doing. And he gave me the cut, and I'm like, hey, what do you think? And she goes, I like it. And like uh, two weeks ago, I was like, I'm thinking of growing my hair back out. And she goes, no. (laughs) She likes his eyes. She likes his body, push-ups, sit-ups. He took care of himself. He wasn't benching 300, but he took care of his body. He was sweet. That's what it says. He's sweet. He's strong. Men, we need this. We need this. Tough and tender. As sweet and sour is to Chinese food, so tough and tender is to manhood. You need to be both tough and tender, strong like a pillar, and sweet with your lips. Jesus is the perfect example of that. And she ends it with, this is my beloved, and I love this, this is my friend. The end of five there. There's a book out there called Real Marriage, and I... I, I commend it to you with some reservations on certain parts, but there's a chapter in there on um, friendship that is the best. Is your spouse your friend? She says, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now watch their response in 6.1. They were originally mocking her a little bit. Who's your man? Verse 9 of chapter 5 and 6.1. They said, Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful of women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? She gives such a presentation of her man, they said, we want to help you find him. And she says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens, to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And so she thinks back to the days of their intimacy. She longs for that security. And she says, you know what? I know where he's gone. He's not at the bar. She believes the best for their marriage. 
So I have a few principles here uh, that I want to talk about. Number one, conflict um, happens. What is that? Happens? There's a space in there. I typed that. That is not Daniel. That is me. That is my typing. Please forgive me. Conflict happens because of our sinful cravings. James 4.1 tells us that. And when conflict happens, we do, are supposed to do what she did here. She seeks reconciliation. If you remember that you, someone has something against you, you leave your altar, your gift right there at the altar, altar, and you go be reconciled, then you come back and worship. That's how you do, that's how you do worship. That's peacemaking. Is if there's reconciliation needed in your marriage, that's the first thing you do. And Tom Nelson said this from his pulpit, and I, I, I see why he said it. He said, and he was teaching through this series, he said, if there's something going on with your marriage right now, he said, I, don't, I want you to stay here, but I don't want you to come back to church till you get it right. There's no need to come in here and put on a show unless you guys are right. And I agree with that. And all marriages will have conflict. It's a given. I was talking to a sweet couple earlier today and told them they could be praying for me because this is what I was talking about. And they said, conflict? We've, we've never had any conflict. And then they got the big smile on their face because they understood conflict happens. And we must be peacemakers in this. We, we must seek peace. And you saw those women wanted to help her seek peace. And here's the biggest principle I want you to take away from this. Your marriage is bigger than your disagreement. Your marriage is bigger than your disagreement. There are few things few things, if not only one thing. I don't think you should ever get a divorce, but very few things. And when you have disagreements, it's bigger. Our, our marriage is bigger than our disagreements. And we can't even remember that. And so I think back to myself, why are, why are, we, why are we getting heated? Why, why go a full day? Why, go, why let the sun go down when we're still angry? Why, why let that happen? We shouldn't, because our marriage is bigger than our disagreements. And so, you see, at the end of uh, verse 3, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. She's confident they're going to work through this. Now, look at this. You start 6-4, and all of a sudden, he's complimenting her body, and he's going in a different direction. And I think in between the space of 3 and the verse of 4, there's this thing called forgiveness that's happened. We don't see it in the Song of Solomon, and that's why the Lord has given us 66 books, is because I think we must deal with the idea of forgiveness right here, because starting in 6.4 through 8.4, uh, these two are, are uh, captured by each other's love. I'll just say it like that. And so we've got to look at other places, and this is kind of a sermon within a sermon, but I want to show you what, what does forgiveness look like. Number one, forgiveness... There's two parts of it. There's from God to man, and there's in between man and woman and man to man. The first part is judicial. There's this one-time pardon for your sins where Jesus says in the Gospels over and over again, your sins have been forgiven. It's a one-time deal. And then that's the judicial, that you and I, when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we bow our lives to Him and we say, please forgive me. I am a wretched sinner, and he declares you not guilty. And from that day on, you are not guilty. That God looks at you through the lens of Jesus' blood and that mercy tree that we sang about, and he sees Judd Rumley clean. He sees Judd Rumley pure. He's got a lot of work to do with Judd Rumley, and he still has a lot to work to do, but judicially, I'm clean. It's one time. And then there's this relational forgiveness, and I have 1 John 1, 8, 9 up there for you. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Anybody that says they aren't sinning, they're, they're just, they're not, they missed it. They're liars or they don't get it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, for all our unrighteousness. That's the relational aspect. So vertically, judicially, I am always right with God through the power of the Spirit because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But relationally, I have to, when I sin, confess my sins so that God and I can be reconciled. That is forgiveness between God and man from heaven to earth. But then there's forgiveness on earth as it is in heaven. A forgiveness on earth is relinquishing our rights in spite of the legitimacy and responding in a Christ-like manner, even if you don't feel like it. And I'll add to this definition, there's a process to this. And so there's a vertical aspect. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so if my wife were to sin against me, I immediately uh, go to God with this, Lord, I forgive her. But there's an aspect to this that we overlook in the church. Uh, we've become very therapeutic in our approach. We say forgive and forget, and we, we don't really work through what the Bible calls us to do in peacemaking. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. God did not forgive me until I came and repented to Him. And He says that in Luke 17, how we are to relate to one another. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. We don't do a very good job at rebuking in the church these days. We'd rather sweep it under the rug. We, we were brought up in shame-based societies where it's just hard for us to face one another. And we would, we'd rather just have everything go happy and, and be uh, no uh, ruffles to the feathers. But the Bible calls us, Jesus calls us, it's red-letter text, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Those are if statements. Those are conditional if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times a day saying, I repent, you must forgive him. We have to go with those verses here. You have to have Ephesians 4.32 and Luke 17. If you don't, you have some awkward view of forgiveness. If I sin against my wife or if my wife sins against me and she comes and she says, please forgive me, you're forgiven. And if she does it day after day after day after day, the Bible calls me to forgive her as God has forgiven me. And we better learn to live this way in marriage or we'll end up being bitter and we'll build walls around each other. One book said there are three levels of forgiveness. This isn't up there. I'll just read it to you. There's this detached forgiveness. There's this kind of things lessen in the relationship. You know, the, the, whole, the whole thing simmers down, but there's never true forgiveness. There's limited forgiveness uh, where it simmers down and it's partially restored. And then there's full forgiveness. Full forgiveness comes when both people come to the table and they work through peacemaking principles. And we have these out there on the front table and we've always had these out here for five years we've had these because conflict happens all the time if you have children you understand that conflict happens all the time if you have three children you really know that conflict happens all the time and it happens between married couples and this is just a great little pamphlet to help you walk through the promises of forgiveness here's here's what forgiveness is not Forgiveness is not approval of what they did. It's not excusing what they did. It's not justifying what they did. It's not pardoning what they did. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. It's the first step towards it. It, does, it is not equal. 
It's not denying what they did. It's not blind to what they did. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I, I don't know where we were taught that. We quote the, as far as the east from the west. So he cho- God chooses not to remember, but he doesn't forget. God is all-knowing, and it's hard for us to forget. We can understand. We can choose to forgive. We can w- let them build back trust. But that's just a false notion. Refusing to take wrong seriously, and forgiveness is not pretending we're not hurt. You need to voice your hurts. What happens when we forgive is this what this is what you say. This is good biblical forgiveness. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident up or use it against you. Tom quotes in that sermon, uh, some people get hysterical in conflicts, some people get historical. Hysterical or historical? Hysterical, they go crazy, ah, rah, and they, they're loud, and the historical, well, you remember the 76 times that we did this. We don't do that. I will not talk to others about this incident, and I will not allow this incident to stand between us and hinder our personal relationship. That is some good counsel. And so we have to believe that in between verse 3 and verse 4, forgiveness has taken place. And so we move from this disagreement, and now we're moving into this, this deepening of their marriage. And so what you're going to see is this man doesn't come back and get historical. He doesn't hold any, uh, um, anything over her head. She makes no excuses for their behavior. They work through their disagreement and they move on. And here's where it goes. He brings her back to the way he talked about her at their honeymoon. We've covered some of this before, so I'm not going to go into detail. Verse 4 of chapter 6, You're as beautiful as Tisra, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. He says, You're as incredible as Maui. You're as, as holy as the Vatican. That's what he's saying. Turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me. He's blown away with his wife. Even after a conflict, he's blown away. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from their washing. All of them bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. He's saying you're just as lovely today as you were when we first got married. He repeats some things. And then he adds a few things. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. He says there are 60 queens, 80 concubines, virgins without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. Now there's a lot of discussion there. Is this Solomon post when he has his 700 concubines and his 300 wives? I don't think so. Personal opinion here, I think he writes Song of Solomon uh, when he's young. He writes Proverbs when he's a father. It's all about my sons do this, my sons do that. And I think then he goes off and he does wrong. And then he writes Ecclesiastes, reflecting back on, I tried it my way. That didn't work. I built all these pools for myself. I've had all these concubines. But here I think he's looking out and he's saying, look at all these uh, people out there, you're the only one. Just as she said, you're one of a kind, he says, you're one of a kind. My dove, my perfect one, it's the same language. And then the young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, they praised her. And here's what they said. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And so not only does he praise her, other people praise her. And so we move from disagreement to this deepening. 
She has a good reputation with others. I think a great cross-reference to this should be the next slide is Proverbs 31, 28, 32, 31. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. I love that. Quote that often to my wife. A lot of, lot of wives do well, baby, but you surpass them all because she is my standard of beauty. And notice here what it says in 30. Charm is deceitful, beauty is in vain. I said this a couple weeks ago and I'll say it again here. The world lies to you, women, about your body. I just found this this week. Five lies about your body. Put an article out there for you to see. The world says your body's decorative, so decorate it. it. The Bible says your body's youthful. The world says your body is flawed but fixable, so buy our products. The Bible says your body is designed exactly how God wanted it. The lie says your body's powerful. You can do whatever you want to with it if you just set your mind to it. No, you have to eat, sleep, and rest. Your body's limited. The world says your body is yours. Do with it what you will. But the Bible says, no, your body, you're a steward. You were bought with a price. And here's the biggest lie. The world says if you fix the outside, everything else on the inside will be better. The Bible says, no, you fix the inside. Charm is deceitful. Beauty's in vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so... She ends this section with, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. And before I was aware, my desire said among me, the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. The New Living Translation says of 12, before I realized it, my strong desires had taken me to the chariot of this noble man. I love that. She is so overwhelmed because this guy took her back fully. There was no hanging things over the head. He was excited to be with her. She's excited to be with him. Amen? And now we come to 613. This is the craziest verse in the whole book. If I were writing the Song of Solomon, I would have left it out because it's hard to understand. Return, return, O Shulamite. Shulamite is the, is the feminine of Solomon, Right? I like that. She took his name. Return, return, O Shulamite, or turn. This is, this is, there's a lot of discussion on this verse. It's crazy. Turn, turn, O Shulamite, turn, turn, that we may look upon you. And then we don't know who's speaking here. It's either he, she, or others. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as one, as upon the dance before two armies? Or if you have a translation, the dance of the Mahanaim. And so one thing we do get right, this is Mrs. Solomon. I like that. I think taking your husband's last name is a good thing. You identify with your husband. This whole idea of dancing and the two armies, that's just strange. It's just strange. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as a dance before two armies or the dance of the Mahanaim? You do a little research here. You go back. The only other time that word... Uh, Mahanaim is used is in Genesis 32 and 33 where Jacob and Esau are reconciled. I like that interpretation. That's a good one. But if you read other interpretations, I'll just read you from the MacArthur Study Bible. This is best understood when he's talking about dancing. 
as being spoken by the beloved. This probably refers to some form of marital dance associated with the city of Maonaim, which would be inappropriate for anyone other than Solomon to witness. So, is this reconciliation or the cha-cha? I know it's reconciliation. That, one, that is one thing we must do. I'll leave the rest for you to think through on your own. Okay? My mother's here. And so we now move to the final love scene. We've covered some of this, so I'll take a 30,000-foot view, comment on the new additions, but here's where I want to talk about how do you deepen your marriage. You will have disagreements in your marriage. You have to work through the process of forgiveness. Here, you're going to see a deepening of marriage, and you're going to see the freedom within the boundaries of the covenant. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. He looks at her most unseemly feature and he says it's beautiful. He calls her noble. He's always lifting her up. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Choose your modern day illustrations carefully. I'm not going to talk about my wife's thighs or say your belly's big, baby. We're just not going there, okay? What he's doing is he's grown in deeper knowledge. We haven't talked about the navel or the belly. And what the idea is, this, this navel that never lacks wine, um, there's this early harvest of grapes and wine. In the wheat, there's this late harvest of wheat. And so you have the early and the late harvest. You have the wine and you have the wheat. All of this the Jewish society saw as a gift of God. He said, these are gifts of the Lord. He's taking notice of her, and he says, you're a gift of God. He says in verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is an ivory tower. There's no such thing as an ivory tower in the land. You don't build towers out of ivory. But he says, if I could, I would build this thing of this most precious material. You're, you're appreciated. Your eyes are a pool of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. In a city where there's so much to do, this pool of Heshbon was a place for retreat. He says, I can go there. When I'm with you, I'm in a place of retreat. I'm going to have trouble in the world, but when I come home, you're a pool of Heshbon. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Be careful there, we're commenting on the nose, okay? You got a big nose, and it's very protective. That's... Just learn to compliment your spouse in ways they understand. What he's saying here is this tower of Lebanon looked out towards Damascus. There was this tower, and they saw when the enemies are coming. He's saying, I can trust you. I not only have a deeper knowledge of you and appreciation of you, I can trust you. Never do you see these two attacking one another. Never even in their disagreement, do you see them playing each other? They're always got each other's best interests at heart. I can honestly say in 14 years of marriage, my wife has never verbally said anything to attack me. And I'm not saying that to say, woe is her. What I'm doing is to show you it can happen. By God's grace and for his glory, she's never, and I know some of you can say the same thing. I, I have a friend in in another part of the country that doesn't feel that safe with women anymore. 
and it crushes me. His first wife cheated on him with his best friend. His second wife was, was much like this woman at the beginning, super selfish. And his life is crushed because the women in his life, and I feel for it. That woman has not been a tower of Lebanon to him. But there's hope. There's hope. There's hope. And that's where you have to get in your own life, in your own marriage. You've got to get to the point. There is hope. And you've got to look up and look out. More on that in a minute. Your head crowns you like Carmel. He said, you notice he's not looking at her body. He said, the, your head is the crown. Your head, the way you carry yourself, he has this respect for her. That is my greatest resume. This woman is my greatest resume. Did you know that? When I came to, to interview for this job, they heard me preach, they listened to my philosophy of ministry, and then I get this text, and you have a wonderful wife. We're thinking about hiring you, but if you're bringing her, you know, we may even give you a second look. She is my greatest resume. That's what Solomon is saying here of his wife. This is the most prized possession in Israel. Carmel, you're my most prized possession. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in his tresses. I am, he said earlier in the book, I'm captured by your love. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O oh loved one, with all your delights. He said to have a... He, she was said he is altogether desirable. She has all his delights. They're overflowing with love. And then you see him. He says here in verse 7, Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like, a, like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay a hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples. Your mouth is the best wine. What does that mean? Exactly what it says. Exactly what it says. And so, gentlemen, I want to give you five things to think about in deepening your marriage. Whether you've been married a year, not even a year, five years, ten years, fourteen years, forty-two years, or fifty-one years. Every single man in here can learn something from this text. Here it is. Number one, you want to have a deeper knowledge of your wife. He talks about things that uh, he didn't talk about before because he's come to know her. And in 14 years of marriage, there's things I know about her that I didn't know on day one. There's a deeper knowledge. He studies his wife. If you're going to memorize sports statistics or you're going to memorize the stock market, I encourage you to memorize many more things about your wife. He has a deeper appreciation of her. There are parts of her now that he didn't know then, and he's grown in a deeper appreciation of her. He has a deeper trust in her. They've been together for a while now, and it's just back and forth. They've been through disagreements. They've worked it out. There's a deeper trust. There's a deeper respect. The longer I am married, the more I respect my wife for who she is and how she carries herself. And as you saw in those last two verses, there is a deeper desire. 
His passion for his wife has not waned. He is not looking for anything else. And he's not looking out the window. He's not wondering if it's better across the street. He says, now more than ever, I want you, I want you, I want you. And notice, we read verse 9 again. Notice, the two have become one. She finishes this thought. I will say, we'll climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine. The scent of your breath is like apples. Your mouth is like the best wine. And she goes, and it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. She carries on. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. The only other time that's used in the Bible is one other time in Song of Solomon in Genesis 3. Cain and Abel. Cain be, be leery. Sin's desire is for you. It wants to consume you. This passion wants to consume you. And she's saying, his passion for me is consuming. I can hear it in his voice. I can see it as he comes to me. And she says, come, my beloved, let us go out into the village, or excuse me, into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards to see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits. And so she says in 13, if you've read Genesis, you know mandrakes are an aphrodisiac. She says to be around you is to be wildly in love. The mandrakes were known then to, to they were just, they were the picture of a man, if you get my drift. And they were supposed that they would bring um, joy and desire into the marital relationship. And she says, hey, the mandrakes have given forth fragrance and the Beside our doors are all the choice fruits. I am here and I am willing and I am for you. And look what she says, ladies, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. These are not two selfish lovers. There is initiation, there is response, there's freedom within the fireplace of passion. They go on dates, they have their regular places, they try new things. That's the way it should be. And she ends with, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who had nursed at my mother's breast. That's awkward. Let's just stop right there. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. In that day and age, if you were to go outside in the ancient uh, Near East, and even some, some of it today in the Middle East, you, I could hold hands with my mother. I could hang out with my brother. I could not hold hands with my wife. It's just seen as wrong. And so what she's saying here is, I want to publicly let the world know I love you. Oh, I wish you were a brother to me so we could just be, we could have, we could show PDA. That's what she's saying. Uh, It's just what she wants to do. She publicly wants to let the the world know of the greatness of this man. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I'd give you spiced wine to drink, juice of my pomegranate, his left hand under my head, his right hand embraces me. Not only would I want to show the world publicly how great you are, privately, we would be together. It is interesting about this idea of public displays of affection. Uh, In seminary, my wife and I were in seminary because we were going to school. We had paid good money to go to school. And so even when we were dating, uh, I I would hang out with my buddies and she would hang out with her friends and we would go to class and we would say hello to each other and we would talk to one another, but we weren't oohing and on over every over each other and they're like well why aren't you guys gawking at each other like well 
Number one, we're not married. And number two, we're, we're here to go to seminary. This isn't, you know, to show it off to you, people. They just didn't get that. But what she's doing here is she says, I want to exalt you. I want to exalt you privately, publicly. And so, ladies, here are some things that I would encourage you with. Men, deeper knowledge, deeper appreciation, deeper trust, deeper respect, and a deeper passion for your wife. Ladies, this is the rice of love. You know, when you get injured and you need to bring healing, they say the rice treatment, rest. Uh, What is it? Rest, ice, compression, elevation, right? It's supposed to bring a healing treatment. It's supposed to restore. Ladies, you can be responsive. She finishes his sentences. Your, your, your mouth is like wine. Oh, it goes down smoothly. She's responsive. I can think of nothing better in a marital relationship than a woman to be responsive to her man. You can be initiating. Come, let us go here. Let us do this. You, you, you have the freedom. Let me say, you have the freedom to be an initiator. And if you see right there, she says, Things new and things old, new as well of old. You, ladies, can be creative. That's what the Bible says. The mandrakes gave forth fragrance beside our doors, new as well as old. You're supposed to grow in your intimacy. It can get better. It should get better. And you can exalt your man publicly and privately. Amen? And then there's the end as we've ended every section because we build this up and then everybody in the room that's not married is like, oh, baby, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It is the right thing. It is the noble thing. It is the holy thing to wait until you have said, I do. So I want to give you a few things of application and then we'll be done. Number one, a high-level application when it comes to conflict. Conflict can bring you closer together. I say can because it can also create distance and build walls. But we have to understand how we're going to go about conflict. Number one, we have to realize it's going to happen. Number two, we have to go about it as peacemakers. And if we don't, we listened, Ashley and I listened to this uh, sermon together uh, this weekend and we both agree. Conflict can bring you closer together or it can build up walls. And what we don't want to be, we are determined by God's grace and for His glories, and we don't want to be that couple at Luby's who sits across from another and shares their supper in silence because they haven't learned how to handle conflict and they've, they've created a distance and built up walls. And what happens is, is that can happen. Um, Tom said it in his sermon, I'll just repeat it here. Older men and older women, they can just get settled in their ways and they can get, um, they can get just kind of, of uh, bitter. You've got to determine right now not to do that. Otherwise, you'll be facing each other, not sharing a word, though you're sharing supper. So go learn to conflict well. Learn to be healthy in your conflict. Be a peacemaker. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to repent. 
You saw that with this woman. She didn't wait. She didn't make excuses. She went looking to make things right. Number two, uh, high level on sex in general. I have to talk about this because every time you read it in the Song of Solomon, um, you, you think that there are just, I mean, fireworks going off, there's, the fans are turned and everything, you're just blown away. Like, is this really what it's like? I mean, sex is mentioned so often in this book, it's almost in every scene. It's not in the last week's scene, though there's an invitation. Uh, you would think uh, that this is what normal life looks like. Well, I wanted to show you, well, you don't need to turn there. Let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 7. Now, concerning matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Singles. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority of her own body, but the husband does. By the way, gentlemen, you can't quote that. Don't go home tonight and say, oh, the pastor said, can't quote it just like that. Hey, Bible says, that's not your body, that's my body. That's not the context. Let me finish. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I often throw that out there. Hey, it's yours, take it. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Heath got it. We're there. Don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together then so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There are times when men and women come together and it's just not fireworks. I read to you my favorite counselor, Dr. David Pallison. He says, good sexual love is simply normal. Sometimes this idealized view of good sex can sound overheated, even when we prize and protect marital sexuality. Sometimes we get the idea that good sex is a gymnastic, ecstatic, romantic, ravaging, bliss, marital passion. Sorry to disillusion you, but good sex is just that. It's normal. And he goes on to say, every now and then you pull out all the stops when you're eating, but that doesn't mean food isn't Um, just regular. And so I put up there, it's it's regular and it's spectacular and you need to know that. Otherwise you head into marriage or you're in your marriage and you're thinking, does it have to look just like this? No. It's regular. It's spectacular. It's part of life. Next, problems within intimacy. Um, there's rejection by women, there's demands by men. They're driven, sometimes they're driven by this emotional connection. If you were to, it's not like this for every single couple in the world, but the majority statistics show women are driven more by the emotional connection, men by the physical passion. The key to understanding where there may be problems is our own sinful condition. Rejection by women, you saw that by her. Uh, You haven't really seen any of the demands by men, but proof in the news proves that. And so men, were, women are verbal. They need to be communicated to. Women, men are visual. It just, it is what it is. Solomon was looking at his wife. Those are the problems. But, but there's a solution, and you see it on the next slide. There's hope. Number one, look up. God, I don't know what's going to come of this. I think of my friend in another part of the country, and I say, 
there's hope. You can do something. You look up. You get outside of yourself and you look up and you say, God can do something great. There's always hope with God. Two, you look out. Satan likes to twist everything God says. God says it's pure and lovely. Satan says, let's pervert it. God says it's designed for union and pleasure. Satan says, let's use it to divide and bring pain. God says it's part of life. Satan says, let's make it bring death. So we look up, we look out, we have our eyes, we have our radars on. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour it. And I would, uh, would say, at a mar- talking on marriage, he prowls around seeking to destroy marriages. And, and don't forget to look in. To look in and say, because if I look back on, and I think about that, our conflict, it's really my fault. I'm going to stand my ground. I have a, I think I have another uh, slide here. It's kind of called the terrible triangle there. Is it up there? Yes. I, me, mine, myself. The basis of life is about myself. Because myself is about what I can get mine. Because it's all about me. Because I am so important. I, I love this quote. I'm going to read it to you. It should be the next one. When it comes to, to intimacy, is sex something I'm giving my spouse or withholding? Is sex something I'm demanding or offering? Is sex something I'm using as a tool of manipulation or an expression of love? If God looked at nothing other than my sexuality, would I be known as a mature Christian? That's Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage. I think that's just a great way we need to think through this. Fourthly, we're almost done. There is freedom. Be controlled by the Spirit and be creative. The Bible calls you to it. The Bible guides you in it. And finally, waiting in marriage. There's, it's the noblest way. If you're here today and you're not married, it's the noblest way. You, you honor God with your life and with your body. Trust me. With my mother sitting here next to my wife, it's the best way. You don't want to do it any other way. As good as all that is, one day it's going to be gone because we're going to be like angels in heaven, neither marrying nor given in marriage. We'll be in the presence of the King of Kings and there will be more joy than we've ever known. Father, help us to learn from this what we need to learn. Help us to live out what we've learned. I pray for the men in this (coughs) congregation. I pray, number one, for the young men that aren't married that they would, like Boaz, get themselves together to give themselves away and be ready for marriage, not to be toying with it if they do not have their head on straight, a good job, and the ability to support and care for a woman. I pray for the men in here who are married, that they would deepen their marriage, they would grow in their knowledge of their spouse, in their appreciation, in their trust, respect, and in their passion. May that flame burn brighter now than it did when they first started. I pray for the women to be responsive, initiating, creative, and exalting of their husbands. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, work together as a church to help one another. I pray specifically for those small groups, love and respect, that that foundation of love and respect for the other spouse would be set, and all this other stuff would just work out as you see fit.
pray now as we partake of communion that we would thank Jesus for the hope we have in the gospel that confirms where we are in marriage or can change our marriage. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.